This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Hello. We are going to be continuing in Exodus 15. And so if you were with us last time, you know that we just came through the Song of Moses. They've crossed the Red Sea. Great triumphant moment. And now Moses has led all of the people of Israel in this wonderfully triumphant song, the Song of Moses. Well, what sticks with you about Song of Moses from last week? Anything jump into your brain? I think obviously when he brought out all the Revelation stuff, it's wild. And even just the fact, I mean, I've probably never read that or thought about that as much as we did last step. I mean, for sure, I've never thought about it for that long. Yeah. So it is interesting that, oh, I should know this song because that's what I'm going to be singing. So we might as well get a little practice on. Yeah. What's funny about it is this is a song that we're going to be singing. The scriptures tell us we're going to be singing this song in heaven. It's, it's rare that you see people really look at it and parse it apart. And like when I was going looking for commentaries and all that kind of stuff, they were few and far between where they did anything more than just kind of state the obvious of what Moses already yeah, like sang. They sang this. <laughs> yeah, yep, they did. There it is. There's the lyrics. So today we're picking up, and Miriam is going to... So Miriam is Moses' sister. You remember her from the beginning of Exodus, and she is the one who followed Moses in the basket, went to Pharaoh's daughter, was like, oh, I know a lady who would be able to nurse this baby for you. And you know, God used her essentially, and saving Moses's life and leading him to become the prince of Egypt. So now they're finally out of Egypt, and she's going to sing. And so it says, when you get to verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, which is miraculous it's not mud mud puddles or marsh dry ground then it says in verse 20 and this is kind of where it's closing out the triumphant portion where everybody's singing it says then miriam the prophetess the sister of aaron so here you have a female prophet which is an interest interesting introduction in the scriptures a prophetess the sister of aaron who's going to become the high priest of israel takes a tambourine in her hand and all of the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. And then it says, and Miriam sang to them. And you were pointing out that in the Hebrew, that pronoun there is masculine. And so what, what that means is it's a mixed crowd. And so you have Miriam with all of these women who come together. And it's like an all-female choir with the tambourines are now coming out in front of the congregation. And they're singing, in a sense, the abridged version <laughs> of the song of Moses here, where they repeat, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider. He has thrown into the sea. So we forgot to add that into last week's podcast. If we're just being honest, but when I started researching what we're going into this week, which is to finish out chapter 15, the story is about bitter waters and it's interesting that the name in Hebrew, Miriam, is a combination of 
two words. The first part comes with bitter, which is Mara, and then sea, which is Yam. So it's the connection. Her name literally means a sea of bitterness. She has been raised up in a house that only knew slavery. And so the name is associated with the bitterness of slavery, the sea of slavery, Miriam, Mara, Yam which is Mary, by the way, that's going to be Mary's name. The mother of Jesus comes from the same Hebrew root as Miriam. And so right after Miriam, the sea of bitterness, gets done singing in triumph about how God has turned her bitterness into triumph, now we get into a story where God is literally going to do, where God is literally going to transform bitter waters into sweet. And that's the the point. That's the headline over this passage that we're getting into today. That was a terrible spoiler. I mean, if just you're reading your Bible, thing. it's right there. You're just listening. Bitter water made sweet. I mean, if you open your Bible, it's right there. It spoils it for you. So if you if you understand the way that the Bible is constructing the the narrative when you get here, what Israel is going through is kind of a physical representation of of the spiritual reality that believers walk through. And so that's kind of important to understand the passage that we're about to see today. So if you were to go back, you would say, you know, all of humanity we're told is born in sin. We're, we're born enslaved to our passions. We're born enslaved to sin and the land of death. All of those metaphors that you see in the Egyptian slavery, we experience in a very spiritual way, right? Slavery to sin, all that. Yeah. We have the tyrant serpent-crowned king that reigns and oppresses us and everything else, but the Jesus comes, and so what do you see in that? It's, it's all of the idols are, are destroyed. You know, God is going to show that everything that we give our lives to is meaningless, and ultimately, a lamb is going to be slain. A firstborn son of God is going to be slain, and by that blood, all of God's people are set free. And so the New Testament comes along and it says, oh, you know, the the crossing of the Red Sea, that's actually a picture of baptism. So Moses is connecting, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul is connecting these things. So if the crossing of the Red Sea is compared to the baptism, then what's on the other side of the baptism where it's like, hey, we're members of the covenantal community. God has saved us. And it's not till then till he's going to give the law, right? Mm -hmm. Then he says, okay, now I want you to follow me, and here's my expectations, right? You, you don't get into the club by following the rules, but if you're going to be in the club, you follow the rules out of gratitude because you want to worship God. But the next 40 years, what are they doing? Wandering. Wandering the wilderness. And so if you're trying to, to build the metaphor of what your life looks like, you're on your way to the promised land. Mm. One day you're going to get there. But after all the climax and all the battles and all the, the high points, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the great baptism moment, da, 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 you know, it's like, woo, all this victory and singing and joy and excitement. Well, get ready because now comes 40 years in the wilderness. Mm. Can you relate to that? Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting, yeah, how honest it is about that. And like you said, like that's Christian living, being a member of the body is one that's going to be suffering and wandering and going towards their eventual home. Yeah, and so one of the things that you find in Scripture is it will talk to you about remember your first love. Well, why is that? 
Because when, when you're living in that moment where you have that first conversion and you experience the radical love and grace of God, it's this high point. It's like nothing could pull me away from this. This is amazing. I just want more and more of God. I want more and more of the gospel. I want more and more of the scriptures. And inevitably, what happens in every single Christian's life is they're going to go through a season of dryness. You, you fall into the season where it's like, you know, this, this is kind of hard. <laughs> you know, this Christian living thing is hard and the world can be brutal and life itself can be really, really difficult and it can leave you longing for your ultimate home, which is not a bad thing, right? And so right as soon as they get through the, the wilderness, if we were writing the story, we would say, oh, you know, they came to God. They followed God. They went through the Red Sea. Now it's just God's going to bring abundance. Yeah. He's going to make it easy street. He's going to make it amazing. They're, they're, they're not going to be able to get enough blessing, and that's not what happens. What happens? They're starting to go without water now. They're on the wilderness. And you're getting the impression like when God calls people into promise, it's like Moses when he says, hey, leave everything you know and go to this land that I'll show you what happens. to what's, What is going on in the land when he gets there? It's barren. It's in the middle of a famine. He's promising children. His wife is barren. It's like you're going, wait a minute, God, you made these promises. And now oh, that I'm talking about Abraham, we're talking about, did I say you Abraham? said Moses? Did I really? And I was like, I don't remember that. Part. <laughs> what, what is going on here? Like, that sounds like a different guy. Yeah. Was this like Sam reading the same Bible as I am? But this is, so that's Genesis 12. So, so Abraham gets on the scene, gets a promise from God. He shows up, he's obedient. He follows, he shows up and it's like, well, this, this is what you called me to. This is hard. Mm. This is dry. Well, the Israelites have gotten through the Red Sea and they're being called out into the wilderness. It's a place of dryness, which inevitably is going to lead to questions, <laughs> buyer's remorse even. And that's a reality that a lot of people struggle with. And when we try to den deny that, then the people who do struggle, like me, wonder, am I the only one? <laughs> You're like, Am I the only one that's struggling with this? And so what this story is going to get at, what do you do? What do you do when you're in the seasons of the dryness? Yeah, I guess the, it's focused on response, right? Like, this is inevitable. And yeah. now it's like, how are we going to respond? Yeah, God, God's not painting pictures like, oh, you've come to me. Well, now there's no struggles. It's like God calls you and says, let me show you how to struggle. Let me show you how to have victory in the middle of the struggle. Let me show you how you find sweetness in the middle of the bitterness. Because this world on this side of glory is filled with a lot of bitterness and dryness and hurt and problems. But you have access to a source of nourishment in the desert. You have access to a source of sweetness in the middle of all the bitter. And that is... That's the secret of Christian living. God does not call you just into easy street. Yeah, that's why the prosperity gospel is so fascinating by people who teach that. Because I'm like, you got to skip over a lot. Like, you're not allowed to use a lot of your Bible if that's what you're preaching. Because the whole time, it's like, suffering's comes. Suffering's inevitable. You know, but take yeah. heart. I've overcome the world. That. It's like, how do they get away with that? Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's not many care. I... Who? <laughs> You're talking about, you'd have like a few pages of your Bible left. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, Abraham. Partial just, characters. Like, I can't tell you all about Abraham, just these certain select right. things. Yeah, you know, all this, he's just not believing hard enough. Yeah, you like know? he went 
and he's rich. <laughs> but they'll, that's exactly what they'll say. Oh, look, see, he's wealthy. No, man, he walked through some really hard seasons. So let's jump, jump into this passage. It's starting in verse 22. It says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. So they get done with their song. Everybody's on cloud nine, super victorious. You just watch God annihilate the greatest army of the greatest empire on the face of the earth. And Moses is now looking out at wilderness, like rocks and shrubbery, maybe like some dried up tumbleweed kind of stuff. We're going out into the desert. And so it says that they went into the wilderness of shore. Now, you're leaving water. You're leaving the Nile Delta. You're leaving provision. You're leaving food. You're leaving all of that stuff. And you're looking at utter barrenness. The only thing you know is that way is God's calling. Mm. You going? Yeah, I'm probably riding the high from the Red Sea, to be yeah. honest. I think I, mean, I probably I should have a better, more faithful answer, but I think that's where I would be at. I'd be just like them. Yeah. I'd be good for three days. Yeah. If I would follow Moses. But imagine the faith that took Moses. God's like, hey, go that way. You're looking, you're like, uh, is there streams over there? We're like, what, what do we got, God? Because I remember walking from Midian this way to get to Egypt, and uh, there's nothing to feed these people, and there's no water, so you're calling me to just venture off into rocks and dirt. like, Yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess he had more foreknowledge than I thought. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he would have known this route. I mean, he's, I mean, at least the region, he's, he's come from Midian to get there. So it says Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. I, I don't think that's accidental language there. He made them like, hey, we're going. And the word there is literally to like uproot. He's ripping them up from their comfortable spot. And they went into the wilderness of shore. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And that alone sets the stage for this because what does that make you think all right i want you to imagine you're setting out you got to find water how how long do you have to find water well like we're it we're we're at the point yeah like we're three days in with no water walking all day in the desert all the dehydration like if you don't get water very soon you're going to die like within a day but what's the problem? There's no water. There's no water, and you're three days in. So what's the if you want to turn back to go get water? Probably dead. You, you not probably. You're like you're not making it six days without water. You're dead. So now all of the people are in the middle of this wilderness. They're three days in, no water, and so unless they find something in a hurry, you can't turn back. It's too late. You're done. You are done. And probably at this point, three days in they are already experiencing how bad dehydration is. Like, I, I looked this up. Crippling headaches, exhaustion, dizziness, aching muscles, heartburn. Like, you're already, your health is already starting to fail three days with no water. Like, what's the official? Did you know? What? How long can you go without I water? I just Googled it because I didn't trust you on this one, to be honest. It says <laughs> about three days. As a okay, general so, yeah. rule of thumb, a person can survive without water for about three days. All right, so they're there. Like already at this point, people are probably starting to fall out and to struggle. And this is, this is dire. Moses has led them into a position where death is there. And that's kind of the point. Oh, by the way, on what day? How many days? Three. So wait a minute. We're on the third day 
and death seems inevitable. Mm. You hear anything there? I'm hearing something. You're hearing something? So it says, when they came to Mara, so remember Miriam's name is Marayam. Mara means bitterness. They could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter, therefore it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And now what that means when it says bitter is like it's it's poisonous. It, it, you can't drink it. It's, it's salty. It's got dead things in it. Something's going on that makes that water not potable. So it's, you know, you, so I want you to imagine this because this also ties into a very real experience in the Christian walk, right? You're desperate. Mm-hmm. You see something in the distance. You know, if I could just make it there, if I could, we can just make it there, that'll be good. And then you get there and it's disappointment. <laughs> you, you ever been there? Yeah. I think everybody has. And so they race up, and I want you to imagine that people have, you know, they're dropping things that are holding them back. They're running as fast as they can to get there. Tremendous excitement that they see this water. It's not just a mirage of the desert. They get right at the edge and they take a drink, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it makes them gag. Mm. They can't possibly drink it, or if they drink it, it's only going to expedite their death. And so now you have the double disappointment. Man, there's not, I mean, if you were just falling headlong into death, that's one thing. But then to have that last minute, like hope that you're going to be rescued and to have that hope dashed, like their hearts are just broken. Three days in, no hope. The water's undrinkable. And God is like, "Uh uh-huh. There's a reason I told Moses to come this way. They're not there because they're disobedient. They're not walking through this because they're being punished. They're there so that God can teach them something. And so it says, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed them a log. And I I hate, I hate that the translations translate this as log or stick because the literal Hebrew word here, it can be log, but it's almost always used and translated as tree. Hmm. So now what he does, God showed him a log and Moses threw it into the water and the water became sweet. This is, this is not like a scientific thing. Like there's a lot of people who are like, well, I wonder what kind of tree would, <laughs> would transform bitter waters into sweet. It's not supposed to be natural. It's showing the people that they can rely on something that a God that makes no sense sometimes Mm -hmm. a God that in the midst of circumstances that are desperate is capable of the supernatural to deliver you from situations and circumstances that do not make sense what he's calling you to do. And so now I want you to imagine you're walking through the desert of sure three days, no water. You see a tree standing up. What does that tree have to have? Oh, water. Yeah. So you look at it and you're like, oh, maybe maybe there's hope. But now you see that the water that is keeping this thing alive is no good to you. But the fact that there's life out in the middle of the lifeless wilderness is so heartening to you from a distance. And like, so just to spoil this, what do you hear? Here's, here's one source of life in a land where everything else is dead. And the way that everyone else survives is for the one living thing in the land of death to be cut down. 
and thrown into the waters. What do waters represent? Judgment. Judgment. Death. So the one source, the one entity of life is cut down and thrown into judgment. And then what happens to your bitterness, Will? Disappears. Disappears. Not only disappears, but it is made sweet. That's right. So all of this is now made sweet. It's not just that you get normal waters. These are like there's something like there's something special about this water. It's not just drinkable water. It is sweet water. This is wonderful water. Having gone from bitterness to sweetness, and the only thing that's changed is the living thing was cut down and thrown in. So what is that? What's what's the application for the Christian here? Because remember, in the in the metaphor, this is after your baptism. Yeah. So what does that mean? When you come to bitterness, what do you need to throw in the middle of your bitterness? Jesus. Jesus. And our focus on Jesus, I think, specifically. That's it. Like the tree in the New Testament is repeatedly called the cross. Yeah. Right? The cross is repeatedly called a tree, I should say. Yeah. Peter refers to it as a tree. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree, all that. And so here you see the cross, and when the cross is thrown in the waters, the tree is thrown into the bitterness. It is made sweet. That is something the longer you live as a Christian, the more you realize that there are seasons of life that are going to come with real bitterness, where, where you're up against the three days. And by the way, on the third day, the living source of life that's thrown into the waters brings life to all those that had certain death hanging over their head on the third day. Don't miss that. But in the Christian life, you're going to walk through and you're going to learn that when you come to those seasons that are bitter, there's one way to make those things sweet. And it has nothing to do with you. You're, I mean, you're not going to clean up the world. You're not going to clean up your circumstances by yourself. You're not going to do anything to that. But when you come with the gospel truth of what your identity is and what you have apart from everything else, when you take that tree and you put the tree, when you put the cross, when you put the gospel in the middle of your bitterness, even then the bitterness can be transformed into sweetness. And I really like how they used bitterness there because that is so true for our own bitterness. Like we can't just get, you know, just not one day we're going to forget it all. Like a bitter heart is one that took a while to get there. Mm -hmm. So we need something outside of ourselves to help us destroy that and turn it into something sweet. Yeah. And I mean, you think about it, I mean, let the metaphor kind of play around. And I mean, we're reading into this, right? But how often is it that you're looking to something where you're like, man, I am dying. I am dry. And so I'm going to run with reckless abandon to what looks like might be able to satisfy me. Oh, my goodness. Like, I am in the worst season. I'm going to run to this to give me life. And you just take the big, deep gulp of what you think is going to save you, what you think is going to satisfy, what you think is going to give you joy in that moment. And it ends up that it makes you gag. It makes you sick. Like there's there's so much application to this. Just brilliant. I mean, God chose that this was going to be the first miracle for the free people, right? Yeah. This is Pharaoh's, Pharaoh and his army are in the, in the rear view. Like this is the first moment that God is saying, I want you to get this lesson. It's not accidental. It's not random. You know, Moses uprooted them and took them out in the desert. God wants them there so that he can show them in the middle of the dryness, 
in the middle of the bitterness. It is the gospel, it's the tree that is cut down for you and thrown into the waters. That is what's going to bring you life. That's what's going to bring you sweetness. That's what's going to overcome all the bitterness. And that's like, I mean, that's just, that's just the reality of our Christian walk. Mm. It just is. And so, see, it says, the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them. What's the test? Are they going to trust him? Yeah. Are you, are you going to trust me? If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And so what God is saying is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all of your ailments, all of your struggles, all of the, the rough things that you endure, and if you follow after me, I'm going to be your healer. So, so this is where we get into a little bit of a doctrinal issue, okay? Because what are Christians so quick to say? God's love is not conditioned on your obedience, right? Yes. So when he says something like this, if you obey, if you follow after me, I'm going to be your healer, right? I'm going, to, I'm going to bring you blessing. How do you make sense of that and keep it from being a legalistic thing? Well, well I guess I got to obey if he's going to love me. Is that what God is saying here? I don't think so. What, is he, what do you think? He's, how, is, how would you put this? I mean, just like Jesus puts it for us. I mean, the cost mm-hmm. of discipleship, it says, you know, if you're going to, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to cost. Yeah. And he doesn't hide that ever. Take up your cross yeah. and follow me. And he also says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Jesus is not a legalist, I promise. <laughs> but what is this saying? It's saying, it's not just like what the Christian evangelical church has beaten into the brains, unfortunately, of so many people, is that salvation is a once and done prayer where you say, I'm a sinner and I need you, Jesus. And that's the end of it. And it's like, no, 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 no. We've talked about this before, but we're about to do it again. So brace yourself for, for some, some theology. There are three stages of salvation, and it's really important that everybody understand this. There's one that's called justification. There's one that's called sanctification, and there's one called glorification. And so justification is the moment where you come to the Lord and you recognize your own bankruptcy, that I can't do it on my own, that I, that I deserve your wrath, that I've sinned against you, that, that I am not living the life that you have designed for me. I'm not even living the life that I've designed for me. I feel like a failure, yet you loved me enough to be like that tree, the one life in the middle of a realm of death who gladly gave yourself and you were thrown into judgment, you paid the penalty of my sin so that I could be pardoned in the courts of heaven, adopted by God the Father, seen as the son of the Father, belonging and loved, and that can never be taken away from you, right? That's one essence of salvation. That's not what God's talking about here, okay? He's already led them through the Red Sea. Yeah, they're free. They're free. They're no longer under the dominion of the serpent king. They're his. And so then the next qu- the next form of salvation is sanctification. And I love the way that I forget where I read this, but justification is past tense. It's you have been saved 
from the penalty of sin. You are not going to hell. You belong to God. Your sin is taken care of all in the past, done, sealed, signed, delivered. The next stage of salvation is my least favorite one (laughs) because it costs something, and that's sanctification. And sanctification is... If, if justification is past tense, sanctification is present tense, and it's you are being saved from the power of sin, that's where you have a role to play. And guess what your role is? Dying. You know what you said? What, what did Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, what do you have to do? Take up your cross. You deny to, yourself. You have to take up your cross and deny yourself. Why? Because what do you bring to the table, Will? Just the sin. <laughs> right? Like that's what we bring to the table is a whole lot of self. And what Jesus is saying is you need to get to a place where you see my mission and my design is more important than you. Mm. So your sin needs to die, not just in justification terms, but the self needs to die. You need to, you need to become small so that I can become big. And the more you're willing to crucify yourself, the more you're willing to follow after me, watch what I do in your life. Because when you're radically obedient to Jesus in all things, guess what kind of life you get to experience this side of heaven? An abundant one. An abundant one. I have watched two like p- types of people. I've seen Christians that are all in for their faith, that are walking through the absolute fires of hell, and guess what? I never get to hear them say, ah, this, this whole Jesus thing, he, he's just too much. I wish I didn't have him. <laughs> like, it, it costs too much. I have never seen somebody give everything to Jesus and go, that was a bad deal. I'm miserable now. I'm just praising too much. I'm praying too much. It's left me empty. No, the more you chase after him, the more you yield to his design, even when things are hard in your life, you are a person marked by the fruit of the spirit. That's when you blossom is when you yield and you obey. And so we live in a culture where if you talk about obedience to God, everybody's so quick to say legalism, that's not the gospel. Wrong. That's absolutely part of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Your sins have been atoned for. You belong to God, but when you hear him say something like you find here in this passage, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And in the New Testament, that translates to be you will experience more of the divine presence of God when you avail yourself to him through submission, surrender, obedience, and worship, you're going to have a better life, Mm. a more abundant life in the spirit. That's not legalism. And so the last bit, the last phase of salvation, we've hit justification, you have been saved from the penalty of sin, sanctification, you are being saved from the power of sin, and the final one is glorification. That's that's the one I'm most looking forward to. You will be saved even from the presence of sin. Mm. In heaven, it's not going to be an option. It's not going to be a temptation. It's not going to be a lure. It is all finished, done, finalized, and you will enjoy the finished work of Christ and what he has built for you to enjoy forever. Yeah. 
And they're going to have that. They're going to have the promised land. So in the Israelite metaphors, they do make it there. Yeah. They do make it there. Takes them a little longer than they desire, but. But you know why it takes them longer than they desire? Because they don't obey. That's it. Because they don't listen to this verse. That's exactly right. Had they followed this. This we would be able to get rid of a lot of the stories that are to come. Exodus would be short. It would be much shorter, but instead they're like, "Oh, we don't know if we can trust it," and so they wander around and they grumble and they're not happy. And what do they do with their bitterness? They just grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble. Throw it at Moses every day. Yeah, that's right. And so what this is telling us is to keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, keep our eyes fixed on Christ. That is going to be how. We experience sweetness in the middle of the bitterness. It, how amazing is that we all know the, that phrase, and we never have anybody who came up with it. The, Which one? The, uh, the penalty of sin, the power oh, yeah. of sin, the presence of sin. Some dude is pen not credited for that for a <laughs> decade. Yeah. Some dude put together the best phrasing ever, and none of us are like, yeah. uh, we all heard this somewhere. I owe him some serious royalties between all of my teaching. I have used that so many times. And so the pattern continues because, you know, they've just done this. And then it says, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And there they camped by the water. So it's right on the other side of this, trusting in in the Lord. They get to the land where it's paradise, you know? 12 springs of water by palm trees. In the ancient world, palms were seen as a symbol of paradise. They still are today. We live in a place of palm trees, right? And so here you have God who's leading them through the desert, and all of a sudden they come through the oasis. But they would have died had the, had the tree not been thrown into the water. So then that's the question. How do you throw the tree in the water? Maybe we've just been on this theme a lot, you and I, but the focus on Jesus, mm-hmm. like they were not focused. I guess for them, it, their focus was on their trust in, in Moses, I feel like. Um, and they were missing that, like, as the man who spoke for God to them. Um, so they had a little bit more of a filter, but, man, because there's so much to distract us, to confuse us, to honestly make us bitter about a bunch of things I have no control over and will never have control over because I can see everything everywhere at all times, and it can just crush me. Mm-hmm. And bitterness, I don't think... I mean, I think it's always been easy, but in our modern, I mean, look at the state of our world. Yeah. I think we're at the prime place to say bitterness has to go or we're done. Yeah. And how many people do you know from being in ministry that are drinking deep from the wrong stuff that's leaving them sick and wrecking their lives and making them gag essentially spiritually? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's for me, one of the ways that I, that I see, you know, throwing the tree in the middle of the bitterness is one of my favorite attributes of God, which is his humility. You know, he, he's God, and yet he was humble enough to be a baby. He's humble enough to walk through all the things that I've walked through. So in ministry, for instance, when I'm, when I'm going through a season where I feel utterly alone or where I feel betrayed or where whatever comes, throwing the tree in the water for me is to go, man, but you faced it so much worse. And you did that when you didn't have to. And you... When you strip it all away, the ultimate reason why you did that, the reason why you wept over Jerusalem, the reason why you were betrayed, willingly betrayed, the reason why you suffered, you did that all for me. 
And so no matter how worthless I feel because of the situations that are surrounding me, and no matter how much my identity is wrecked because you know I failed at this or messed this up or did something that's humiliating that I'm ashamed of, at the end of the day, if I take the reality that you were voluntarily cut down, which by the way, in the prophets, uses that language about him, yeah. cut down in his youth, and he was judged and suffered for me in the midst of all the other things that are shaking me to my core. The reality is that when the God of the universe sets his appraisal on me, everything Jesus did is a reflection of how valuable I am. Mm. And that's pretty sweet. That is. That'll transform the bitterness. But you... And I love that he puts it on the other side of the baptism because what does that mean? The gospel is not just something you need to get out of Egypt. It's something you're going to need for the journey in the wilderness again and again. And as we'll see, as we wrap this up, you see the first very clear picture of the gospel. Like, what is this miracle about? Like, I kind of wonder, like a Jew who reads the Torah, this is just a bizarre miracle. Yeah, you got to wonder about why that's in there. Though. Yeah, but it's so crystal clear gospel to me that it's like, oh, <laughs> that is so a picture, like an object lesson of the fact that we need the gospel. We need the tree put into the middle of the bitterness to transform it to sweet. That's that's what our God does. And as we continue to press forward in the coming chapters of Exodus, it's one story after the next that is so abundantly, clearly pointing to Jesus. And Jesus will say that it's about him, that it's teaching us we need the gospel every single day as we walk in the wilderness awaiting the promised land. It's a good word. Great word. You are not done with the gospel when you give your life to Jesus. That's just the beginning. You need the gospel every single day to transform your bitterness into sweet. Yeah, and he's not done with us when we're bitter, which I think is another thing. Yeah, he's pretty amazing. Yeah, like he they get no lectures here for grumbling. I think they do later, but this one, it's just like, I'll, I'll just handle this. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you just a pass right on this was, one. And that's, we need that sometimes. I think we need the lectures sometimes, and sometimes we just need to be like, Mm-hmm. Jesus just handles it for us. Yeah. I mean, God knows that this is going to be hard. Yeah. He takes them three days on purpose. And it's to, it's like we said, you're going to learn that just because you're in desperation, you know, I'm able to overcome mm. desperate circumstances when it seems like death is the only possible outcome. I got this. Trust me. All right, so we're going to leave it there for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on the Out of Water podcast. Uh, Please remember to like and subscribe, share our podcast. We've been getting emails, which have been really encouraging, where our listeners have been sharing the podcast with family members and coworkers and even customers, which which makes me wonder how their business is doing now. Uh, But really, really wonderful. I love that, and uh, please do remember to do that. It just helps to get the gospel out. It's an easy way to do it. Also, if you ever have any thoughts, shoot us emails. Yeah, please. Please do. If you We'd like if, to know that someone listens to this. Yeah, if you, have a, if you have a series that you would like to propose, something that you'd like for Will and I to tackle or, or to address from a biblical worldview perspective, we would love to, to get ideas of where we could take this podcast because really it's, it's for the flock, and uh, we would be glad to do it if we feel like we're equipped to do it. 
or if God equips us to do it. (laughs) So anyway, God bless you. Have a great week. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Thank you.